And is that just a bracket? Was it square brackets? Oh. Normal bracket. Sorry, parentheses. Yeah. Because I'm fancy. Parentheses. Well, so what's the technical name for square brackets? Square parentheses. <laughs> yeah. Square parentheses? Square parentheses. Hi and welcome to episode 44 of the ZA Dev Chat podcast. Tonight on the show, we have Steve Barnett and Justin Slack, and we're talking accessibility. It's an underplayed topic that a lot of us don't know um, enough about. So uh, on the panel to me is Len. How's it, Len? How's it, everyone? How's it? And we've got Steve. Hello, Steve. Hello there. And we've got Justin. How's it going, Justin? Hi, everyone. So to kick us off, why don't you guys give us a bit of introduction, who you guys are, what you do, and and how you guys got to this path of, of caring about accessibility. Uh, Steve, if we start with you. Mm, sure. So I have been working as a front-end developer for quite some time, and in the past few years, I've started doing user experience kind of things. Um, at the moment, I work at a place called Codex, uh, the waterfront in Cape Town, where I help people learn to code. And that's most of my time, but a day or two a week, I also do freelancing, uh, front-end stuff and user experience stuff. Cool. And Justin? Okay. Uh, my name's Justin Slack. I'm currently head of design and front-end development at a company called New Media Labs. I've been working in front-end development for uh, a very long time. Uh, my interest is in particularly around HTML um, and CSS more than perhaps JavaScript. And... I've been interested in accessibility because I see it as part of progressive enhancement, which I'm very much of the opinion of that's the way we should be building for the web. Great stuff. Well, thank you guys for taking the time to to come and chat to us. So maybe for the sake of this conversation, let's uh, put down a, a broad definition of, of what accessibility means, especially from a web front-end perspective. Well, for me, in terms, of, uh, in terms of users, which is what it always comes down to, Accessibility is all about inclusive design and thinking about the choices that we make building things for people who aren't like us. And what does that mean? That might mean somebody who is uh, has cognitive difficulties or uh, physical difficulties or vision difficulties or even hearing difficulties. Um, or especially locally, it might be language difficulties. Most of our country doesn't have English as a first language, but a whole lot of the web content is in English. Yeah, I want to add in there that um, I'm, I'm getting a little bit older now. And one of the things I noticed as I'm getting older is my eyesight is deteriorating rapidly. <laughs> um, you know, these tiny, tiny fonts on apps, I can, I really struggle with. Mm, I mean, the when we talk about accessibility, people often immediately go to the the far end of the scale. So if we're talking about vision, people assume you mean blind people using screen readers to access the web, but it's actually much more complicated and nuanced than that. People who have lower or, or bad vision or like like you, like you, Len, I also, um, my vision is going a bit as I'm getting a bit older, or maybe you're just using your phone um, outside and it's really sunny and the contrast on the website you're trying to read is a bit crappy, so you can't quite see what's going on. Right, right. I mean, I've, I think I've spent way too many years indoors underneath... Uh, lighting to to be blunt and when I go outside I find it very difficult to see things I'm, I'm very light sensitive as well yeah the, the apps and things are almost unusable for me most of the time outdoors and it doesn't help that a particularly uh, prevalent design pattern is you know light gray background with slightly darker gray text which makes it near impossible to read yeah yeah super low contrast right <laughs> Yes. Okay. Cool. So, so I think we, I think we understand the the, the point of it. Um, perhaps you can take us into you know what are some of the approaches and you know what are the things you have to take care of to combat sort of bad apps for for people who have uh, issues. Well, perhaps we could start with what the W3C says about accessibility by their own guidelines. Okay. Great. So at the W3C, there's what's known as the Web Accessibility Initiative, and they've been tasked with coming up with guidelines and standards uh, around accessibility. And one of the things that they've come up with, which is 
probably the most well-known thing when it comes to uh, accessibility is Y area. So the W-A-I-A-R-I-A, which is the Web Accessibility Initiative, and the A-R-R-I-A, but stands for Accessible Rich Internet Applications. And that's actually been around for a while. It was first published in March 2014. So um, it's not something new. And these concerns have been around for quite a while. The name doesn't exactly roll off the tongue, but it's, uh, it does what it says on the tin. Okay, that's great. I never actually knew what it stood for before. I know Aria is baked into Bootstrap. I don't know since which version they they started doing it, but it's an older example. So they constantly show you how to use these tags or these attributes on elements. Okay, maybe just as an example, like what would it mean if I take a, like a link I don't know, you would annotate it with what's the attributes all aria dash. So aria dash role and then give it something. What what does it actually mean? Like what technology assistive technologies are involved in picking that up and, and what do they do for the end users? Like it's a very interesting thing and it's constantly there in the docs. And I don't know how many people actually just copy and paste it or strip it out because they don't know what it means. Yeah, I think an important thing to do though is to take uh, like a half a step back and to think about what is actually baked into HTML before you even have to put ARIA stuff on top of it. And one of the most important things is semantic HTML. So if you're having a button on your screen that somebody has to tap or click, you should use the button element. And if you use a button element, you mostly don't need to add any extra ARIA stuff on top. Screen readers and other assistive technologies know that that's a button because you've used the button element. Instead of some spam tag that's stylized to hell with JavaScript hooking into a click. Exactly. You could use a div with 17 classes and some ARIA roles, or you could just use a button because it's a button. Now, so there is actually an ARIA role called button. So you can't say span role equals button. But as Steve has pointed out, it's not, not the best way to do it. It doesn't have the accessibility that's naturally built into a button. So a button, for example, when you use it, you can hit enter on your keyboard because that's built into that HTML tag. And the browser has an accessibility API uh, that knows if it sees the button tag that, well, now I can know that when enter is hit, I must now execute some kind of a, um, uh, you know, I must make the button do what it's intended to do. If you go span role equals button, you don't have that because it's not part of the accessibility API. Another thing that's part of the accessibility API is this really new and strange element called A which is used for links, um, which is focusable by keyboards and also has a bunch of baked-in accessibility. So you could use divs and spans and give them classes and roles and things to make them look kind of like links and act kind of like links, or you could just use a link. And what are some of the built-in uh, accessibility that you can tack on, on top of a link or an anchor to be precise? Well, for a start, it's keyboard focusable, which makes it very friendly. Now, so tabbing through a screen or a page will focus all your A tags as you go through them. And once one is focused, you can hit enter on the keyboard and that will then take you to where the link is pointing. Um, you don't get that by using some other element for, for links. And like the, is it the title attribute that can also be used to, to, to the assistive technologies like read that out or signal that to the user somehow? Uh, this is a bit of a tricky issue actually. Um, you would think that the title attribute would be great for accessibility but it can actually cause trouble with screen readers um, where, it, where it can override, override existing functionality, actually. Sometimes you can add what you think is really accessible, but it actually ends up not being, um, you know, it's not giving, because of the way in which some screen readers work, they actually get stuck on things like title attributes. So it's actually recommended not to use the title attributes on the link, uh, even though that sounds counterintuitive. But it's kind of, it boils down to using the simplest version possible of a thing. So with a link, for example, you want to add a bit of text to tell the user where, what the link is or what it does or where it goes. Well, you have that, the link text between the opening and the closing of the anchor text. That's right. So something like click here is not a useful link in terms of accessibility because the screen reader is going to read click here. It's not really going to tell a, a person uh, where that link is taking them because it's not descriptive. And I thought that's a trick only for SEO is to have the keywords and the links to boost the, the rank. We do not speak of the SEO. <laughs> no, it's just, well, I learned that click here is bad practice. 
And it just makes sense. If you stop and think about it, it probably means your se- sentence or your navigation is poorly structured in any case. Well, one of the nice things about uh, approaching accessibility as universal design or inclusive design is that you do get some other benefits from it too. And one of them being uh, better kind of SEO-ness, I guess. So I'm curious, while we're still in the normal HTML realm, before we start going to the WAI um, initiative stuff, what other HTML elements are there that's useful from a semantic accessibility point of view? Like the, I'm thinking the nav element or article element, or like a lot of these new HTML5 um, stuff. How can we use that? Well, HTML5 introduced a number of uh, new tags, and those are all um, are all mapped to. Let me not say that in in good browsers, they are all mapped to the accessibility API, uh, i.e., including Edge, well, which different things now, and Safari are lagging in terms of these. But yeah, exactly, it's exactly those types of elements: nav, aside, footer, header, article, section, the main the main tag. Those all have accessibility baked into them, and you don't actually need to give them a role. When we first started using those, we would tend to say things like nav role equals navigation and so on um, a side role equals sidebar we actually now don't need to map those roles because of the browse the way the browser ex- browser accessibility apis have improved over the last few years since html5 was first released so we can use all of those and they will have accessibility baked into them we don't even need to assign a role to them anymore Woo-hoo. <laughs> yeah that's awesome I, I just want to ask something i'm completely kind of new to this so for a person who needs to kind of switch these things on or use a screen reader, let's say I'm in Google Chrome or Safari or whatever, is what is it that I have to do? I mean, or is there is there anything in particular? Do I have to install extra software? You guys talk about a screen reader. I'm assuming that's something that's going to read the web page. Maybe just give us a view of you know what what that side of it looks like. So a screen reader will read the page to you. In Mac OS, it's built in, in in accessibility. You can go and talk, turn on, turn that on in your preferences, your accessibility preferences. Uh, on Windows, you need to download uh, a screen reader. Actually, um, NVDA, I'm not sure what that stands for. Maybe, maybe Steve does. It doesn't really matter what it stands for. That's the most common one, I think. And they actually released a new version today. So uh, that is open source uh, software that will that you can install on Windows. Okay, so that you install this, it's sort of at the operating system level rather than just in the browser particularly, and it, it, it helps you navigate the entire OS? Yes, for VoiceOver on Mac OS X, and also for VoiceOver on iOS, actually. And um, that kind of range of Apple devices has, despite the things that, bad things that Safari might have been doing, the operating system actually has been taking lots of big smile making leaps in accessibility with voiceover and people um a lot of people have switched to iphones because the ios voiceover is or used to be much more advanced than talkback and similar things on android okay that's that's super interesting i'm just trying to get a picture of you know that that whole side of things i know when i used the little phones like the the four inch phones i definitely had to switch the font up luckily i'm not uh, hard of hearing yeah so i think um it's important to remember that um, accessibility and uh, assistive technology isn't just these very specialized softwares, but anytime you go to a web page where the text is slightly too small and you uh, control or command plus plus just so you can get the text to a size that is actually readable, um, that's a form of assistive technology as well. Or captions on videos on YouTube. Right, right. Or it's also different ways of interacting with a web page. So maybe you're mostly browsing with your uh, mouse off to the side, or maybe you're using a fancy trackpad, or maybe you have uh, gotten into an accident the other day and your good hand is maybe not so useful to you right now, and you're having to tab through a page instead or use the mouse with your offhand. All of that kind of stuff can be helped a lot if a site is built with accessible principles in mind. Yeah, I think that's an important point that Steve raises there, that when we talk about accessibility, we're not talking about, uh, you know, there's, there's such a range of uh, things we need to take into account when we're doing that. It's not just on the extreme sides of the scale. It can be, you, you know, it could your ability to access a website could be temporary. 
as Steve gives with an example of, you know, you've hurt your hand and you've got to use your other hand for the mouse. So it's as long as we, that's why it should be baked into everything. It's not just going to, oh, someone is blind uh, on that huge extreme. You know, it can be a whole gradation of things that we need to to, to take into account. Oh, that is interesting. I think I'm guilty of having thought of the extremes, like knowing about voiceover and screen readers. I didn't assume like somebody with ailing vision. It's just like the person could barely see, so they need this. So yeah, I think we're all guilty of that. Um, so, so I guess what I want to ask is now, so now we know about voiceover and we know we might need to use our left hand or our right hand um, to practice using our websites. Uh, but I mean, that's kind of, to me, that feels a bit half RC. Is there a good um, set of tools you guys can recommend or practices that somebody can use to maybe experience their own website for the first time, like somebody with um, some accessibility needs would experience it and then work through from there to make it better? Well, if you don't want to go down the using uh, voiceover or using some kind of assistive tech as a kind of full-on as a full-on hands-on kind of way of doing stuff, there are lots of tools these days that you can use to kind of give you a, a checklist for things to do to improve, but also a bunch of automated um, things that can even tie into your continuous integration, which is quite groovy. Yeah, I'd be curious to know how you would hook this up to your CI. Very carefully. Mary, what would you be testing? Would you um, do have like a Selenium style thing that inspects the markup looking for certain tags or, or, or attributes or a lack of attributes on enough elements in the page? Yeah, so there's a kind of a first pass of um, looking at your forms. Do all of your form elements like inputs have labels? Or looking at all of your links and saying, are, they, are any of the linked texts click or click here? Or are any of the linked texts repeated over the page? Even if it's something useful like read next article, if you have 10 of those on a page, that's not going to help so much. And your CI would you know, fail if it says, oh, no, all your link text is click here. That's probably a bit crap. You should have a look at that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm wondering also if you couldn't test for contrast, I mean, just for the visual side of it. Absolutely. As well. Like, like you were saying earlier, having like a very low contrast gray text and you know, gray background kind of thing wouldn't be a good... Yeah. yeah, I mean, color on the web is its whole kettle, its whole own kettle of pain. You've got color contrast to think about, color blindness to think about. Right, like, so I guess that the color blindness thing means there's certain combinations of colors that just wouldn't work. And this is before you even get into cultural stuff of red means danger in one culture and lucky in another culture. Oh, really? Yes, red. <laughs> where, where is red a lucky color? Uh, in China, where it's associated with lucky money packets and such. Oh, okay. I'll, uh, I'll fax you one. Thank you very much. <laughs> You're welcome. Now, I just want to say there are actually a number of tools that you can utilize um, around things like color contrast. Uh, there are uh, tools that you can use that will check your site for different types of color blindness, uh, that will do contrast checkers, that will check uh, color ratios. Um, so there, there are a number of tools um, that you can use to, to check your designs for for readability. And there's more than one kind of color blindness, a whole lots of scales on that. So you can check for all of those as well. So there's a lot of uh, resources out there uh, designed to help you uh, deal with these types of problems. Yeah, I know when we had Jeff Fletcher on for the data visualization episode, uh, one of the resources he mentioned, um, can't remember it offhand now, but it's also color palettes for visualizations. And this lady who designed it specifically took into account different kinds of color blindness and density of information and contrast and all this. And it's just fantastic. And it's built into uh, D3, most of them, um, all available as a plugin. So it takes that whole burden off designing visualizations, at least. But I don't know how well suited that would be for if you need a decent color palette for a website. Yeah, I think you'd probably need to do some additional checks on that. Uh, Interestingly, there's a Chrome add-on actually that for the inspector that will do an accessibility check for you in the browser right there. Um, and it checks um, a number of things related to HTML tags and structure and contrast as well. So you can just add that to your Chrome dev tools and have something right there while you're building your sites. One of my favorite things about color and the web is being careful to not use just color to communicate something. Like if a bit of text changes from uh, kind of dark red to light red or from blue to green, um, 
not everyone's going to see that. So you need to use something else as well, you know, like adding a border or changing the font weight or something quite uh, different. Yeah, you can't just rely on color to convey what you want to convey meaning. Uh, and that's something that uh, we tend to, to do, designers tend to do. We'll make it this color because it means this, but you don't even know if someone's going to see the color the same way you're seeing it. Some other lovely things to uh, give us more headaches when we're building things is putting information only behind the hover because nobody uses touchscreens, right? Right, right, right. I guess that is frustrating sometimes on using a mobile browser that you need to figure out what you can likely tap on and you know have something magical appear, but then at the same time you need to double tap it to actually get the buttons to work. It's flipping annoying. And again, it's a it's a continuum. So it's like, we're not saying, you know, you can never put anything behind a hover, but any important information should be immediately visible. And anything that's behind a hover should be classifiable as optional information that the user won't need to get their task done. Yeah, I think that's a really good principle. Thanks. So I guess I want to swing it a little bit just away from the tech for a moment, just to kind of back to the scope and the challenges and the requirements of this. Is there anywhere in the world where this stuff is legally required that you need to um, be accessible for a certain class of user that you guys know of? As far as I know, in the UK, it is required. Um, there was a court case, it was quite a while ago, maybe even a decade ago, um, about an online examination that was not accessible. And uh, the person with disability tried to write their exam and couldn't. And I know they took that institution, there was a case around that and uh, there are accessibility guidelines now in the UK. I'm not sure exactly what the legality around them are. Um, the EU as well, Australia, I, I know of. And um, I would be very surprised if the US didn't have a whole bunch of... Uh... I was just going to mention, and the US as well, there are, um, but on a being a federal, from a state to state, state by state basis, there are uh, accessibility guidelines that are gazetted or whatever the equivalent of that would be. Gazelled, if it's local. That was an animal joke. <laughs> yeah, so that's, so I guess you could probably say it's only a matter of time before this has to become standard practice for all of us. Yes, I think that's true. Uh, I like to look at it in the way we used to look at responsive design a couple of years ago where we would say, okay, there's this new cool thing, responsive design. Do you want us to do it for you? Now we look at the responsive design as a given. We don't do anything unless it's going to be responsive. So I'd hope to see that accessibility becomes like that as well. It's just something that you do. It's not an extra or an add-on or anything like that. It's just the way we build things. So that's, and I think it's, it, there will be legislation at some point. So, uh, I think, it, as I said, needs to just become a, a given. We don't add it on or think about it later. We build with it in mind. And I think a big part of that is is on us as developers and designers to to push from the bottom up to get this into our work, because the the legal stuff will give us the top downy kind of push. But we need to take steps, and we need to tell more of our colleagues about it, and tell more of our bosses about it about about why accessibility is important and why it's going to end up with us having better products for more users. And accessibility doesn't only benefit people with disabilities or who have difficulty accessing the web, it, develop, it, it benefits everybody. Because if you're building your, uh, your sites or your apps with accessibility in mind, you're automatically following the correct standards, uh, you're keeping page size down, you're thinking about contrast, you're doing all those types of things, and that benefits everyone. It's not so. It's a, you know, it's it makes sense to do it. Not just oh, we must cater for people who might not be able to access it. It's caters for everybody, and it's our benefit to everybody. And those are the kind of things that we can sell to the bosses. I mean, to ourselves, we can ride the line of well, it's the right thing to do, but that's often quite hard to sell to the business, right? Yeah, but creating a better product, yeah, makes for an easier sell. And I guess one thing I didn't think to blanket under accessibility like we mentioned a bit earlier in the show was the multilingualization what's it m10 in <laughs> multilingualization um internationalization yeah yeah that was and it makes sense kind of in a way to put that under the same thing because it's just about making your content more accessible it's not about disabilities i think that's kind of i came into the school with that thing in my head that accessibility is for disabilities 
but it's much more broader than than that. Yeah, I mean, if you're providing video content, if you can provide uh, captions, that means someone who's listening to it uh, that isn't the first language speaker of the language of the video can catch up and kind of understand the content a bit more easily, perhaps. And if you're reviewing all of your written content and you go through it and you write it in more kind of plain language rather than using lots of technical terms or jargon, everyone's going to understand it a bit more easily, not just the people who aren't experts in the domain. And I think even a flip side would be if somebody is wants to watch a video, but they're in a noisy place, like all you know, on the how train and they don't have their headphones. If it's got closed captions, they can just watch it and, and read the captions. I know I do that with Facebook videos. Like it's annoying. It's just this noise. It sounds just off. But then sometimes the people put in the subtitles and it's very easy to just follow along and, and laugh. Um, I just read this book, Design for Real Life. Uh, I don't get a commission on this, um, but it's all about uh, stress cases for people using your websites and applications. And it takes this kind of route that we're talking about as it's not just about accessibility, it's about inclusive design or about um, universal design and thinking, you know what, somebody might be in a bad situation <clears throat> and need to use our stuff. How can we build our things to make it easier for them to do what they need to do maybe in a hurry or when they're upset or something else. I love that term, inclusive design. And yeah, it's a great way to to think about these things. And I think for me, inclusive design helps me remember, or calling it inclusive design helps me remember that we are talking about this continuum. You know, we're not just talking about the far ends of a spectrum. We're talking about everything in between, which is at the heart of lots of other things like progressive enhancement and even responsive web design, which was mostly about squishiness and layouts, but it's like, it's not mobile, tablet, desktop. You know, you have got everything in between. Yes, and it's about including those screen sizes and, and giving them access to the content. And if you've got it kind of working right, it scales up all the way to a 40-inch TV as well, even if it's a crappy browser that runs on the TV. You just, that little bit of effort gave you just what what's what increased your audience so much more. Yeah, that's right. And it's about performance as well as uh, an accessibility tool. Uh, you can... If your site has poor performance and it can't download and someone's on their terrible 3G connection, um, that's an accessibility issue. So it encompasses all these things. It's not just we must people who use a screen reader be able to hear what, what correctly, what the structure of our content is. It covers a whole range of these things. And if we're going to talk about performance, we should talk about images. Um, and from an accessibility standpoint, that means alt text. Yes, yeah, a very simple thing. And it's so often... Uh, ignored or or implemented poorly the text is there but it's empty so it passes the validator or there's one word in the alt text that doesn't really describe the image the, yeah so the screen readers can obviously handle alt text better than the title attribute because i guess for me they kind of fell in the same same class well before this talk started and i wanted to ask then does the same go for if you bump up to the new html5 stuff if you put in a f what's a fig and caption with an image in there, do they handle that beautifully if you, if you do your work right? Uh, yes, they do, because uh, that's already telling the screen reader that an image is going to occur now, and then you're linking the caption to the image. So semantically, they are linked, the caption figure and the image itself. So yeah, much, much better than just putting in an image. I mean, even, alt, even this alt attribute, which has been around since the year dot in HTML, is a nice example of a thing that we often think about just for accessibility purposes, but it has other benefits too. You have, you're loading a page which has a whole bunch of images. Halfway through the page, your connection craps out. Half of the images don't load. But if you've got good alt text written for those images, the information from those images is still conveyed. Oh, I don't even think about that. It's been a while since I've seen the broken image icon, i.e. I don't even know how the browsers... Hashtag mind blown. No, I don't even know how the browsers show it these days. I have to go test. Now, I was just going to say, somewhere to see that in action is in an HTML email where you have images turned off and you can see if people are using their alt tags correctly. I've seen a few funky experiments of people doing fancy stuff with even styling the alt text, um, especially in HTML emails. You can set a nice little kind of bit of color there so that, oh, my big purple image doesn't load. Well, at least it will probably look kind of purple in the email. That's right. There are actually quite a few uh, CSS rules you can apply to alt tags. You can bump up the text and change the font and so on. I did not know that. 
That is, that's also a good one. And I think especially the HTML email is the thing. Everybody needs to send HTML email somewhere along the line in their project. And it's a pain. And that's a nice way to make it way more friendlier um, for people that don't know you, that's not trusting your site yet. Images disabled. Thanks. I'll find some links for that for the show notes on how the old, how to style the old text. I can send you some. Please. Another thing I wanted to ask is, like, how popular is this at the moment um, in South Africa, if you guys have to gauge? I know you guys gave a presentation recently, was it at the Cape Town Front End Developers Meetup about the topic? Yeah, we ran a we ran a, sh- a workshop, um, which was around uh, the time of Global Accessibility Awareness Day, which is a global kind of initiative to... Uh, create awareness around accessibility. And we were the only one in the country, and I think possibly on the continent. We were the only ones on the continent that did anything for Global Accessibility Awareness Day. So, so that might be some way to indicate it's not big here yet. I was going to say yet. <laughs> that was enough to, to get me to get you guys on to come chat about it. That's maybe so curious. I did not know of this initiative. What's the idea behind this? It's just like, a lot of people all over the world following the same kind of curriculum or so just everybody combines the same, you know, what's social amplification for the idea. What did you guys get up to? So we put together a, a workshop where we spoke a little bit about accessibility and what it is and went through some examples around ARIA and so on. And uh, we looked at some personas, as in people who access the web uh, but have certain difficulties with that and then we got people in the workshop to work around those types of issues Um, and the ultimate aim of it was for them to go away from that workshop and take what they'd learned and encountered to their workplaces and start to kind of evangelize i don't really like that word but anyway uh, accessibility uh, in their work environments. Yeah, and the personas we used were from a book called uh, Web for a- from Rosenfeld Media by uh, Sarah Horton and uh, Whitney Queensbury, Queensbury? I think Queensbury, um, which is this amazing book all about, um, it's kind of UXE flavored with a little bit of kind of text thrown in, um, but it's got a whole bunch of personas of varying um, kind of differently abled and we we use those personas we stuck them up printed them up nice and big on the wall and we kind of uh, walked around the room and got people to kind of take notes on them and then to pick one and run through some of the projects that they're working on at the moment and think about how they might make slightly different decisions now based on thinking about these personas who are probably slightly different from the ones that they have already that's amazing where can people find out more about those personas uh, uh, on the internet brilliant way to do it <laughs> so we've sure. actually put them we've put up a whole page a set of resources on our front-end developers uh, website from the workshop and they're all available on github as well so we can share that with you okay great we'll make sure to have that in the show notes Woo-hoo. so uh, just in terms of uh, global accessibility awareness day there's no uh, official program or anything like that that you have to follow. You can really do uh, do anything that you like. Um, but the purpose of the day is just to get people talking, get people thinking about, thinking about um, accessibility and how uh, disabilities might affect people who are trying to access the web or software. Um, yeah, so uh, we just put together the workshop uh, of our own battery. Uh, it's awesome that you guys did. It's really, really amazing. Just gets the the word out. Are, are you coming up to Joburg anytime soon? I'm actually going to be in Joburg in September for the Pixel App Conference. So maybe we could organise a accessibility workshop at the same time. Accessible pixels. I think that would be a great idea. We must definitely do something because I think this is so important. And my my mind's already working around the stuff Kenneth and I are doing in the day about how we could incorporate some of this stuff. It'd be super interesting to have a little bit of a community that we could at least talk to and share notes with. Yeah. We should talk close to the time, see what we can arrange. Perfect. Is there anything else that we still need to cover? I'm sure we've kind of just lost over a lot of important stuff. Like, like what, what if we missed? Um, but I can only drive this so far, not knowing. And I mean, my mind's really been blown. <clears throat> what what else is important that we missed, guys? Um, there's a lot more to area than we've talked about. Um, it's not just roles; it's also states and properties. Um, it's perhaps not. It's maybe a little bit technical to go into just talking about it. Um, but we can, again, point you to 
some resources around that. But you can assign states and, and properties to your roles. So you can let some, the classic example of doing that is kind of a tab system. Instead of using display none, uh, you use area hidden and that makes your tabs accessible, whereas display none is not accessible. Oh, that's interesting. I must, I think that brings up something interesting for me. How does Aria play with uh, with single page apps? Um, I mean, if we would like, we're swapping out the body without the page actually reloading. How, how does you know any other component in these hugely interactive systems? Is there a way we need to signal to the software that reads the Aria text that that like there's been a big state change? It needs to start reinterpreting the body. So state state changes can be handled. You know, they're just attributes. I'm, yeah, I'm talking about Aria states. Yeah. They are just attributes. So you would handle them like any other attribute. There's no real gotcha there. Uh, if you're rendering the whole page again, you just need to, you need to make sure that you are attaching the correct states when, when you're doing that. And no need to set some property on the container to indicate to the software that those things, children might get completely blown away and restarted again or re rebuilt again. You would need to do something like that. To be honest, this isn't something I can really speak of with expertise. Uh, maybe Steve has something better to add than I do. Uh, I try and veer in the other direction. Um, I try and stay away from single page apps. Uh, yeah, me too. But they do exist. So perhaps. I mean, our already has us covered it, as in it is the the spec is quite large and there's a lot of stuff going on that you can do to indicate, you know, visibility and changeability and um Hey, screen reader, by the way, this thing has changed and oh, it's about to change again. Do, do you have to be explicit about that in a single page app? Like sort of, so you get a, in a single page app, you're changing pages and the, do the screen readers kind of pick up that state change you were saying? Yes, but you do need to be careful because um, you don't want to be too interrupting. So one of the other, uh, one, of, well, one of the many kind of guidelines um, for the accessibility stuff is to not make stuff time-based because if somebody is you know scrolling down your page using their screen reader and then you've waited five seconds and then you pop in some kind of modal or something which then gets announced it kind of it breaks right in the middle of the flow i mean it's it's annoying enough when you can see it but if it's kind of interrupting your scrolling down the reading of the page it's like ah oh, what is this thing doing get out of my way yeah, yeah that is a particular kind of evil right uh, one thing you could use um is the will change property which is the a CSS property that tells the browser which elements on your page might change. Doesn't not necessarily will, but might even that's called will change. Um, so you can tell the browser to anticipate that something is going to change using the, the will change property, which has pretty good support now, um, as long as you don't declare it on everything. So you could actually do this on hovers, and it does make hovers a little bit more accessible. So you can say an element when you hover, it will change. And that's a CSS property that you can apply that warns the browser that something's going to happen. And uh, you could you can do that with area states as well. So that an area state will change at some point. I was just going to say, it's kind of ties in what you said earlier with the pop-up should be supplementary information. Just because there's a property now that can help you cope with it doesn't mean you've got your privileges back to put useful stuff behind it. Yeah, I mean, the best way to make things accessible is to never hide them behind anything, um, especially not something that's JavaScript dependent, because you never quite know if your JavaScript is going to work or not, for various reasons, not just is it enabled, but a whole, fact, whole range of other reasons. We're talking about like all of these things which kind of make accessibility sound very hard. And to be fair, it's not super easy if you are doing a very complicated, very tricksy, turny kind of um, single page app, which is logging new state changes every half a second or something. But the majority of the stuff on the web um, is not that complicated. Even on, say, e-commerce sites, most of the things that you're doing is web pages with text and images. And accessibility for that is relatively straightforward. That is what we started off with, which is using the right HTML elements for stuff, links for links and buttons for buttons, and having a good kind of, the right kind of H1s, H2s, and H3s down your page, and having your document in a sensible order, and all these kind of things, which aren't technically complicated, and which all of us can, can quite easily do. 
uh, as long as we take that extra kind of pause to have a think about it and go, hey, wait a minute, that should probably be a button, not three divs in a span. Also, three divs in a span is the name of my new band. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. I mean, as Steve says, HTML has a lot of accessibility features just baked in straight away. If you're using proper semantic HTML, you're halfway there. And then the other thing, I, something else that I think gets a little bit neglected is um, CSS and how it affects accessibility. So for example, um, in terms of spacing, if you go and put in uh, you know, two keyboard space, uh, sorry, a keyboard space between two letters in a in a title of something, because you want some space there, that's going to cause problems with screen readers because they're going to read that as a break between a word. Um, so I mean that sounds simple, but stuff like that. Uh, same thing with using it important, um, you know in your CSS, this now governs things and forces rules that could cause problems with accessibility. Um, removing focus on elements in CSS, often button focus gets removed because it's not particularly pretty, particularly in Firefox. So you remove the focus on your button or on your, in or your link. And that causes accessibility issues because now someone who's using a keyboard and tab to move through a form or whatever it might be on the page can't see that an element is actually in focus. Uh, the same for uh, generated content like the before and after tags and so on, using those to put actual content into the page as opposed to just a stylistic element uh, can cause problems with screen readers. Um, you know, set, for example, adding uh, numbers to a list via generated content and cause trouble for screen readers. So they also CSS things we need to take into account. It's not just about the HTML. And, uh, <clears throat> another presentation thing that drives me into a fiery fit of rage is disabling zooming on websites. The, there's the meta viewport tag, which you can set to user scalable no, if you're feeling particularly evil, which you should never ever do, which means if I visit your website on my phone and the text is a bit small and I try and uh, pinch zoom into it to make the text bigger so I can actually read it, if you've set that tag, it stops me from doing that. And it means that I can't use your website or app. And that makes me sad. I was wondering why some sites I couldn't zoom into. Thanks, that's, a, that's the explanation. Because they hate you and all of their users. Yep. I, I just haven't been going back to those sites anymore. And I'm thinking on the mobile site, it's probably an easy mistake to make because you copy some HTML5 boilerplate mobile edition that's been forked 50 times and... You have no idea what those meta tags mean. Throw it in and you go, oh, look, it looks mobile on my mobile and desktop on my desktop and carry on. Not thinking about what just happened. Mm. I was just going to mention oral cascading style sheets that I don't think a lot of people know about. Uh, um, so from CSS2, you can actually use a CSS to provide oral properties to give information to non-sighted users and to voice and to voice over um, applications um, in this and it's kind of in the same way that fonts provide visual information you can provide oral information something like an audio font almost sounds odd i know but so you can say things like you can control volume um, you can say whether an element will be spoken by the screen reader with the speak property um, you can you Use pause, cue, during, you can choose speech rate, stress, richness. They're all these CSS oral properties um, that you can also add to your tags that uh, add kind of richness for accessibility. Um, I particularly like the speech, what, speak, sorry, the speak property, because one of the things that's been very fashionable recently, perhaps not so much anymore, is icon fonts. But a screen reader will speak icon font unless you say, you know, speak unless you turn that off in your CSS. So a lot of icons get used as a font and the screen reader keeps reading things like icon hyphen calendar um, and you don't want the screen reader to be doing that because again, it's giving information to someone that is irrelevant to the content. So the CSS oral cascading style sheets are something to also look at um, and use where appropriate. Well, are they only picked up by the by the screen readers, or legit, you know, like you have print style sheets, I guess, or or are they? I'm just how how do they fit into the world? So they would only be picked up by uh, oral screen readers in the same way that a print style sheet is. 
and the number of properties that you can just add to, to, your, uh, to your CSS rules. Okay, excellent, thanks. Share this site on Icon Facebook, Icon Twitter, Icon LinkedIn, Icon Snapchat. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, so I just wanted to mention, you've um, already mentioned, you know, zooming when you're using your uh, meta tags. One of the other things we can do is um, media type. There's they're, they're far more than just the two that we usually use, print and screen media types um, for, for style sheets. So we can also tailor our uh, media types for our style sheets for different devices. As a kind of uh, recap, wrap-up kind of thing, I'd like to, I think the most important thing for me about accessibility as a whole and how, that, uh, how we should start to consider it in the stuff that we work on is that it doesn't have to be this all or nothing and it's not just about the far ends of the spectrum. We're not just talking about someone at the, the edges of uh, a cognitive disability or a physical disability or a vision disability. We're also talking about everyone all along the spectrum, all along the continuum, everywhere in between. And we might be talking about uh, somebody has a, a temporary kind of state that changes the way they interact with your website or your web app. Or they may be in a different context that's particularly bright or loud or dark or quiet. Or they might be rushed or stressed. And all of these things and everything in between you can help your users with by thinking about accessibility and inclusive design when you're designing and when you're building your stuff that you send out into the world gets off of soapbox. Well, thank you very much, Steve. That was awesome. Thank you very much for having us. Cool. Yeah, no, thanks a lot, guys. This we like, yeah, this is fantastic, and it does seem it's exactly what you guys said. It's like an incremental thing that we can just start working into our apps and get better and better and better with it while selling it to business without disrupting everything too badly and just making our products better. Okay, Justin, any closing remarks? Um, yeah, just to echo that, you know, I'd like to see this as an integrated process in what we do and not not an extra, not an add-on, not a we'll consider it later once we've finished everything. It's just this is how we build things for the web and it's integrated into our processes. It's part of the way we do business. We committed to it. Um, and we support it in our organizations when we're building things. It's just this, we have a set of guidelines and we follow them and our sites are accessible from the get-go. Hell yeah. Yeah, yeah. Cool. So with that, let's uh, get into some picks. Uh, Len, do you have any picks for us? Um, just started looking at Datomic, the uh, Closure database. I'm finding it super interesting. So if guys want to see what a, an immutable data store looks like, have a look at Datomic. Steve, any picks from your side? Uh, there's a new tool or newish tool doing the rounds called Tenon, T-E-N-O-N dot uh, I-O, which is an automated accessibility checker, which is, there's a couple of uh, similar kind of tools doing the rounds, but this one is quite kind of full featured. And uh, I think it's Carl Groves is the person who runs it and he writes about accessibility a lot. So he's also interesting to check out. Nice. Justin, any picks from your side? Yeah, also related to uh, accessibility is the, the latest version of NVDA, which I now know what it stands for, is Non-Visual Desktop Access. And that's a free screen reader, um, which you can download and use to test your websites. Um, that's NV Access is the people who uh, build that. And then this is something that's really old, but I push it all the time. And it's HTML5 Outliner. And this is just a tool that will take your HTML5, your HTML document, and will check that you've outlined it correctly. And this is crucial for accessibility. So it basically looks at, are you using section, article, div, h tags in the correct order? Are they structured properly? The screen reader can easily uh, your uh, read the structure of a document, which is just as important as the content for uh, screen readers. So that's the HTML5 outliner. It gives you like a little mini table of contents of your page. Uh, that's right. And uh, very handy to see if you're using section is a particular thing that people use incorrectly. You must have an H tag in a section and this will sort it out for you. Oh yeah, that sounds really handy. Thanks. And then I guess just from my side, um, they were on the, around the global Accessibility Awareness Day, the Ember community did a, a bunch of work and had a bunch of presentations and made an Ember um, Ember-A11Y add-on. I'll put a link to it 
in the show note that helps manipulate the aria roles as i understand it for um to help screen readers as you progress through an ember app and i think it's a fantastic idea and i hope the other uh, single page app people um, communities pick up on this and then just another tool i think i might have picked it before on the show uh, it's for mac it's called flux or f.lux uh, this tool at, at night under synthetic light adjusts the screen temperature um, of your monitor so it goes like all yellowy instead of like this harsh blue so you one you get tired while you actually work in front of the machine at night which is a good thing um, and it's like less strain on your eyes and ios since 9.3 has the same thing built in with night shift where if you enable that as the sunset the screen starts warming up so you're not blasted that um you know that harsh light in your eyes if you do work with color though so if you're a designer or video editor or something like that it's obviously going to interfere heavily or if you want to watch movies on your on your laptop but it's a fantastic tool and and really helps me a lot well flux is a good example of uh how somebody might be viewing your website differently to how you expect yes yes i must say if you switch it especially at night if i switch it off for some reason or another or like vlc it's said to be disabled for vlc it's like looking into the sun suddenly that's bizarre so yeah that definitely changes color dramatically and i don't even have it set to become that warm as 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 it can go so yeah i didn't even notice i was doing something that could affect accessibility (laughs) thanks for pointing that out (laughs) yeah guys this was fantastic thanks a lot for your time um i learned a lot I hope the listeners learned a lot and, and I hope people take this stuff to heart and that we can start growing this awareness, get people to embrace that we need to do this inclusive design. I really like that term and I hope it sticks. And I'm sure Justin will say the same, that I'm very happy for anyone to hit me up on Twitter with questions about accessibility. Yes, me too. Anytime. Oh, thank you so much, guys. That's super interesting and helpful. Well, thanks very much for having us. It's only a pleasure. Cool. Thanks, everyone. Cheers. Bye. Cheers. Bye.